Hello, and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today, I've got a really wonderful lineup of guests with me to discuss Iris Murdoch and feminism, which is a topic that's been discussed, I think, a good deal over the years without any very firm conclusions being reached. But perhaps uh, by the end of this podcast, we will have uh, come to some form of resolution about uh, Iris's feminism. Joining me today is uh, Dr. Lucy Bolton, who's a reader in film studies at Queen Mary University of London and a returning podcaster. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Miles. Hi, everyone. Uh, she's the author of Contemporary Cinema and the Philosophy of Iris Murdoch, um, which came out in 2019. Uh, of course, as Iris's centenary. And it is out, Lucy tells me, in paperback um, early in the new year. I think it's February 2021, uh, at a very reasonable price of 1999. So I'm sure you're watching that up. Uh, Lucy specializes in film philosophy and women's cinema, including feminist philosophy and phenomenology, and indeed much else to my second guest is uh, Wendy Jones Nakanishi. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Miles. Hi, thank you for joining us. She's an American by birth, um, but she spent 36 years living and working in Japan, where she was employed as a university professor. And she's published widely on British and Japanese literature, on uh, Murdoch and uh, Virginia Woolf, and indeed much more. Um, she's written uh, three crime fiction novels set in Japan. And having done her postgraduate work in Britain, um, she's now living in Lancaster, which, uh, for those who don't know, is um, far in the north of Britain. <laughs> and uh, my third guest, I'm really, really pleased that uh, we've got Carol Sommer with us. Hello, Carol. Hi. Hi, Miles. Hi, Hi everyone. Uh, Carol's an artist uh, based in Northeast, and um, since 2005, uh, she's been applying uh, Irish Milk's uh, philosophical ideas about classification to her fictional material as a way of making artwork and since 2012 to her fictional depictions of women's experience. The work includes a book, uh, which is uh, Cartography for Girls, an A to Z of orientations identified within the novels of Iris Murdoch, which came out in 2016. Um, she's got an Instagram account, which is at cartography underscore for underscore girls, which has been live since May 2017. And she's producing, been producing over the last year or so, uh, fascinating um, videos and films, film images and stills um, connecting um, Murdoch's work with artwork um, so it's it's wonderful do go and have a look at it um, and there'll be a link underneath the uh, the podcast on SoundCloud. So Wendy I'd like to come to you first I think to talk about her novels and to put uh, Murdoch in perspective so do you think Murdoch is a feminist who wrote feminist literature? And the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain why. I think first we need to talk a little bit about the term feminism. As you know, we're now on the fourth wave of feminism. Briefly, the first wave took place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, emerging from an environment of urban industrialism and liberal socialist politics. The goal was to open up opportunities for women and in particular, to grant them the right to vote. The second wave began in the 1960s, continued into the 1990s, and emerged in the context of anti-war and civil rights movements, and the growing self-consciousness of a variety of minority groups around the world. Much of its energy was focused on passing the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution, guaranteeing social equality regardless of sex. 15 American states failed to ratify this amendment. The third wave began in the 1990s and reflected post-colonial and post-modern thinking. The third wave feminists saw themselves as strong and empowered, refusing to accept victimhood or to become objects of a sexist patriarchy. As for the fourth wave, it's so recent, its outlines are not yet clear. It's moving back to issues central to the earliest phases of the women's movement. Uh, problems like sexual abuse, rape, violence against women, unequal pay, slut shaming, and the pressure on women to conform to a single and unrealistic body type. And also that gains in female representation in politics and business are slight. Now, my own feeling is I'm not a feminist either, so I'm glad that Murdoch isn't. Why? Because I am not fond of isms or ists. 
I think that identity politics dominating modern discourse confirm my dislike of terms such as feminism, but also um, misogynist, racist. To me, these terms lack any real significance. And I think, I think in a sense, it's a kind of cowardice and laziness, a way to shut down discourse rather than engage in it. It's also a kind of virtue signaling. For example, being a feminist is good. On the other hand, people who hold certain views must be denounced as misogynist or racist, and their opinions can be automatically discounted. Okay, so why do I think that Murdoch isn't a feminist? Well, I'm not the only person who thinks that. In um, Women in the House of Fiction, Lorna Sage observes that, like Elizabeth Gaskell and George Eliot, Murdoch puts the woman question to one side. Like Murdoch, Eliot, George Eliot, failed to allow her female characters to reach the financial independence and successful career she herself enjoyed. And this has led to feminist critics being angry with Eliot because, she, for example, she did not permit Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch to do what George Eliot did in real life translate, publish articles, edit a periodical, refuse to marry until she was middle-aged, live an independent life as a spinster, and finally live openly with a man she could not marry. George Eliot was not a feminist. She was not in favor, for example, of giving women the vote. Many of her female protagonists suffer unhappy endings in her novels, but we readers are always reminded to bear in mind the way in which their moral development has been stunted by the expectations of their immediate family environment and by those of the wider social world. Murdoch's attitude toward men and women reminds me of that held by other women who achieved power or success, such as George Eliot and more recently, Margaret Thatcher, both of whom idolized their fathers and spoke little or disparagingly of their mothers. And so I think that Murdoch herself would say she was not a feminist. Um, in an interview, she said, quote, I think I want to write about things on the whole where it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, in which case, you'd better be male, because a male represents ordinary human beings, unfortunately, as things stand at the moment, whereas a woman is always a woman. And we can look also at Virginia Woolf. Um, now, of course, two of her works, A Room of One's Own and Three Guineas, have been adopted by feminists as seminal texts. But was Woolf really a feminist? In a room of one's own, she argues a woman must have money and a room of her own to be able to write fiction. She acknowledges female authors might feel resentful at having to contend with many obstacles that male authors do not contend with, and that this resentment might seep into their works, but she strongly urges women not to fall prey to this resentment. To achieve great art, they must become beings like Shakespeare, with no desire to protest, preach, proclaim an injury, pay off a score, make the world the witness of some hardship or grievance. Wolf concludes by saying, it is fatal for any, anyone who writes to think of their sex. So does Murdoch address the theme of gender inequality in her books? In The Flight from the Enchanter, an elderly suffragette named Mrs. Wingfield, who is trying to save a woman's periodical, Artemis, that she has founded, claims, quote, there are too many men in this story. Um, so despite female characters featuring larger, largely in the book, um, ironically, The Flight from the Enchanter according to one critic, is as close as Murdoch comes in her fiction to giving a prominent role to what its characters refer to as female emancipation. Um, now, the flight also has many other themes, such as the attraction to power relationships, particularly the Megas disciple axis, the connection between sexuality and love, 
the interest in marginalized communities, the lure of intellectual quests, the relationship between good and evil. Uh, but apart from this book, the theme of female emancipation scarcely features again. The Artemis subplot in the flight is the nearest Murdoch ever gets to an extended feminist statement. Uh, we can go on to observe that from Jake Donahue in Under the Net to Martin Lynch Gibbon in A Severed Head to Hilary Bird in A Word Child, male narrators are everywhere in Murdoch's fictional world, particularly in novels written before 1980. And even when men are not the narrators of the books, male characters and their psychological, ethical, and social dilemmas occupy center stage. Murdoch never uses a female narrator. Male rivalry is a favorite Murdochian narrative complication, and it appears in A Severed Head, The Time of the Angels, An Accidental Man, Henry and Cato, The Sea, The Sea, the Good Apprentice and the Green Knight. Another form of male rivalry that Murdoch explores is the master-disciple relationship, the love-hate it engenders in such works as The Flight from the Enchanter, The Bell, A Fairly Honorable Defeat, The Black Prince, The Philosopher's Pupil, The Book in the Brotherhood, and The Message to the Planet. In 1977, Murdoch observed to Michael Bellamy in an interview, I identify with men more than women, I think. I don't think it's a great leap. There's not much difference really. One's just a human being. I think I'm more interested in men than women. I'm not interested in women's problems as such, though I'm a great supporter of women's liberation particularly education for women, but in aid of getting women to join the human race, not in aid of making any kind of feminine contribution to the world. I think there's a kind of human contribution, but I don't think there's a female contribution. And a year earlier in another interview, she also said, although I too am prejudiced on behalf of the downtrodden group to which I belong, the subject bores me in a way. Women who think of themselves as something separate are joining a kind of inferiority movement, like women's clubs. I realize I am lucky. I have never picked out, I have never felt picked out in an intellectual sense because I'm a woman. These distinctions are not made in Oxford. So I think for Murdoch in her books, intellectual interests are largely a male preserve. And I think that it's very telling that she does feature women who are terribly clever. Um, so there's Morgan Brown, a linguist um, in A Fairly Honorable Defeat, but we're never really seen her in her professional capacity. Whereas Julius King, another character in that book, fully in inhabits his academic identity. Morgan seems to be playing a part. And Hilda, uh, Morgan's sister, the cleverest of them all, has not trained her mind. She's married instead of going to university. And I think you can see in that book that for Murdoch, having been to university and won the glittering prizes is very important. And characters who haven't done that are in a sense discounted. And I'll be finishing soon and let the next person come. <laughs> we can also see this in Nuns and Soldiers. So Gertrude Openshaw and Anne Cabbage, who were both prize students at Cambridge, they both failed to live up to what Murdoch might have thought was their academic potential. Gertrude uh, marries and feels very at home in the world of domesticity and family relationships. And Anne also yeah, becomes a nun. And it's, in a sense, you have the sense she's done that to escape the fate that might have been expected of her becoming a university professor or something. Murdoch's female characters seem to inhabit a separate sphere from her male characters. And their modus operandi, operandi tends to be all for love. They will throw anything up if they fall in love with a man. Whereas the men tend to want it both. They want to have their careers, 
and love. Okay. Um, well, thank, thank you, Wendy, for um, that, that great introduction and, and how much you've given to us there, I think. Uh, not just about Murdoch, but about, um, you say, particular ways of feminism and, and going back and, how, and what um, Murdoch takes in particular from um, some Victorian writers as well. And it's great to have you here because I think there's going to be some uh, really interesting divergent views across the, uh, <laughs> across the podcast. Uh, okay. So I want to pick, and, I, and I'm sure we're going to come back and pick up on that. <laughs> Lucy, let's, um, I'd like to come to you because um, I know that your, your, your particular interest is in Murdoch philosophy, but also you've been writing a piece on Murdoch and feminism uh, recently. So um, let's then, so I'm, I'm going to pass over to you to obviously please um, talk about a little bit about Murdoch's philosophy in relationship to feminism and anything you want to respond to that, uh, that Wendy's just mentioned. Okay, thanks very much, Miles. Thanks, Wendy. Um, I, I certainly do see Murdoch's philosophical work as a very rich resource for my own feminist philosophical work. And I think, though, that what you've really beautifully encompassed there um, are the challenges and potential re rewards for Murdoch in this regard. Um, so it is quite clear, as you say, that she doesn't want to kind of silo off women's issues. She, um, she says uh, in, in interview in 1983, the point of liberation is not, and this is to differ with certain views of women's lib, to say we're better or we're special or we're wonderful, but just to be equal, to be ordinary, to join the human race, to be people, just people like everybody else. And in that quote, it really encapsulates for me one of the, the, the problems that feminism has with Murdoch, which is that she doesn't tend to doesn't tend overtly to talk about structures, structural oppression. Um, structural racism, structural sexism, that kind of thing. She's very much focused on the individual. And as she says in that, that quote that you um, read out from her, she realises that she was lucky. She says, I had never felt picked out in an intellectual sense because I'm a woman. These distinctions are not made at Oxford. So her, her life was actually very, her intellectual life, very rarefied. And she didn't encounter the... Um, uh, the discrimination that so many other women obviously obviously do, but I think her relationship with feminism is is um, very interesting. Uh, I think some of the problems for feminists with her with her position um, that the individual and the focus on the individual is the most important thing. Some of the problems with that are first of all, as I say, that it doesn't really address um, structural issues. But also that the, the, those individuals are all very different. So, um, in contemporary feminism, which is uh, far more intersectional feminism that looks at individuals in their kind of embodied selves and their embodied lives of every element of their life, clearly there is no such thing as just one universal individual. Um, each individual is very different, and we need to be able to think about those individuals in, a, in an informative and useful way. Now, this is where I think Murdoch does do this. <laughs> um, and another problem, obviously, is also the idea that of um, uh, sort of not thinking of oneself and of the private realm, all those questions, which Spina Loverbond has critiqued so brilliantly in her gender and philosophy um, work on, on Murdoch, that the idea of women in the private realm and women being selfless are precisely two of the elements of the feminist struggle you know, that have tried to um, not confine women to the private realm and also not to and to encourage them to to think of themselves more and to not denigrate themselves but I, I would say that Murdoch does not you know her, her call to um, throw away or turn away from the fat, minimise the fat, relentless ego. It's not the same as self-denigration, quite the opposite. It's a very different sort of project. And Nora Hammerlinen has written wonderfully about that, about how it's actually a type of um, loss of ego that is, isn't to do with putting others first it, or before you. It's to do with paying attention to the other, which is a far more sort of um, individual project rather than a kind of uh, a self-denial or a self um, sort, of, sort of a suppression of, of self. So I think that that, that, that kind of objection about um, uh, selflessness does not necessarily stand up 
either. And then there's also the idea that you picked up on in relation to some of the novels that um, and some of the examples that Murdoch gives about women in her in her philosophical writings can sound a little bit patronizing. Um, things like the selfless, the unpretentious worker or the selfless mother, the dotty aunt, these kind of characters that sound a bit sort of um, irritatingly dismissive. <laughs> but at the same time, what I love so much and always have done about reading Murdoch's philosophical work, and this is throughout the collection Existentialists and Mystics, definitely, and Metaphysics of Guide to Morals, is the number of examples of women that she uses in her philosophical writing. And this is, to me, unprecedented. I, I've never read anybody who does this. Her examples are drawn from the Bible, you know, Martha and Mary, who has the more interesting life, from literature, Henry James, um, Maggie and her pagoda. She talks, um, she draws examples from, um, from history, from literature, from religion, and these are peppered throughout her writings. So if you want to consider her uh, imaginary, as Hannah Altorf has done after um, Michelle, Michelle Ledeuf, then you can see that Murdoch's imaginary is full of what we might call feminine examples, examples of women, examples of conflicts within the home, um, very sort of workaday decisions that a mother might have to make. Um, and within that, she does reveal quite a lot of awareness, I think, of the way in which structures oppress women. So there's that wonderful example where she draws the difference between mothers and aunts, saying that mothers have lots of um, egoistic satisfactions and much power. Like she's not really in favour of the kind of uh, lionization of the mother figure. She says, well, it's the aunts who might be the selfless, unrewarded um, uh, doers of good um, so she's she's on the lookout for interesting individuals with conundrums about their lives and about um, the good in their lives and about their relationship with others and a load of these examples are of women so that's where I see her as offering really rich resources and I would say particularly for contemporary feminism if we think about what she would have read I mean, uh, she would have read, she read the, se the Second Sex, Simone de Beauvoir, but she's not aware of a lot of the texts that perhaps second wave feminists and certainly contemporary feminists um, re rely upon. But she um, has, of course, uh, got this focus on the individual, which has become, which Wendy doesn't um, approve of, and I understand fully why, um, a focus on the individual uh, and their intersectional characteristics. So it becomes far more about aligned with identity politics than it does aligned with any kind of sort of social or political struggle in a way. Although the intersectionality is a, um, intersectional feminism is of course a political position. So I think that her focus on the individual, and as she says, when she um, takes issue with Sartre and his kind of, solipsistic self-obsession as she seems to see it um you know individuals have to be linked to their history and linked to their lives when you think about them and that is precisely what intersectional feminism is is all about it's a kind of embodied phenomenology this particular person and their characteristics and their lives and their history and their culture and their kind of encultured bodies that is what intersectional feminism is, is concerned with so i think murdoch is in many ways an intersectional feminist I also think that her, and I know Miles, you've done some work on this and we've been talking about it, but the increasing idea of the ethics of care as a feminist form mm, of ethics yeah, yeah. is something that is very relevant to Murdoch. Um, the idea of loving attention, a just and loving gaze, and perhaps thinking beyond that to action and what might actually be done in pursuit of that or, or following on from that um, orientation, as Carol might say, um, is, I think, very compatible with the idea of, of a feminist ethics of care. So for me, the criticisms and the potential, uh, the potentialities in Murdoch's work for feminism are, are incredibly uh, complex and fascinating and speak to each other. But definitely from my perspective at the moment, um, her interest in women's stories and individuals 
and women as, um, as, as examples and women as lives that are fascinating and the subject of sort of soulful, multifaceted lives makes her a, an intersectional feminist. Well, that's wonderful, I think, because that brings together these two, um, as I talked at the beginning, these two opposing kind of um, intellectual um, approaches to Murdoch's work. And one coming through from um, the philosophy, um, and one coming through from the fiction, and I'm and I'm sure that Wendy um, in a little while is going to have some um, some thoughts to respond back to um, in a little bit. But what I want to do now is to bring in Ca um, Carol as a um, and move from um, this kind of an intellectualization of Murdoch's work, if I can call it that, in, into this kind of um, the art the artistic and intellectual response to it as well. Carol, could you tell us a little bit about your project and also. Um, where the inspiration came from uh, and, and how you and, and how it's um, developed really. Yeah, sure. So um, in, in my practice in general, I'm interested in ideas about classification and in and the representation of women. And um, I, I, I started, I think I started looking at Iris Murdoch's, uh, trying to apply aspects of Iris Murdoch's philosophy to her fiction in about 2005, and I, and I think as I started that, I was um, prompted to start that by her warnings against the dangers of classification and to sort of try and play around with that idea. And then um, when I, I going to a few Iris Murdoch conferences, I, I, I became really curious about what her, about the way that she represents women in the, the way that women are represented in the novels. So um, in, 2013, I thought I'd start a PhD about, uh, about that, but I wasn't quite sure what to what to do a PhD, how to do a PhD about that, and it was a practice-led PhD. But um, I think, like, so for me, going through certain processes that are, are creative processes, to me, sort of gives a, a a different way into it or a different way of of looking at it. So, as an example. From 2005, I in um, Bradley Cole's Iris Murdoch for Beginners, he, he's talking about um, the Eros as a kind of scale. So I made a, an Eros scale, which was two lists, things that were probably at the bottom end of the Eros scale and things that were probably at the top end of the Eros scale. And just by, and so list, and then I went through all of the novels and tried to list the good things and the bad things. And just by visually, the visual uh, weighting of those lists. So one was, the bad one was ginormous and the good one was quite short. And it sort of gave a, a it sort of gave me a, a way into what else could I do? How could I measure things or, or push against the idea of classification? So in the, um, in the PhD, it, it, I, it took me ages to find something. I couldn't find anything to measure. I wasn't sure what I, I wanted to measure. And then um, I, I really liked her phrase, loving is an orientation, a direction of energy, not just a state of mind. And it seemed to make sense that maybe the idea of um, femaleness in the novels might be in the orientations of the female characters. And um, so looking at, looking at um, contemporary feminists like Sarah Ahmed, um, I thought for me it was really important that um, there, there seemed to be a parallel when Sarah Ahmed writes about, uh, she advocates not making distinctions between thought, bodily sensation and emotions and she calls these impressions and I thought her idea of impressions seemed to come close to what, how I interpreted Murdoch's idea of orientations. So in the so that that became my process to find all of the orientations of all of the women and to list them alphabetically so to avoid any hierarchy between thought bodily sensation and emotion and um so it to try and fa find a way to give form to femaleness and then by um putting them in alphabetical order so that to to get rid of any kind of hierarchy whatsoever apart from the one uh, determined by the alphabet, it, it, there's a sense that I did, there was some really nice juxtapositions between the between different orientations, or, or in other words, quotes that come from women's consciousnesses. 
but there's a real sense that um, uh, all of her females are somehow alienated from happiness. So, and, and again, like looking at Sarah Ahmed, who writes that a feminist sympathy is sympathetic to an alienation from happiness. So to me, so I'll, ju so I'll just read you a little bit from the beginning of the book, just so you... This, yeah. is from, this is from your book, Cartography for Girls? Yeah. Yes, yeah. lovely. So this is the first, from the first page. A black ring was closing upon her field of vision. A black wall rose up in front of her. A blackness surrounded her. A blind, stupid idea of consolation, dying but refusing to perish, was her chief torment. The idea of being consoled by Ludwig for all this suffering. A certainty of his absolute truthfulness with her had been a steady consolation. A cloud of tiredness and depression came down and covered her like a bell. A cold, dark shadow fell across Paula. A completely new sensation of jealousy shook her whole body in successive shudders of pain. A confusion of feelings silenced her. A dark confusion rose to cover her. A darkness entered into her like a swarm of bees. So, so, and the book continues like that through to Z. But they, they, there's a to me, there's a real sense that they're um, very much alienated from happiness. And um, yeah, I suppose it depends. I suppose it depends how you read that. But if you, if from my point of view, like I, I think. I tend to agree with Sarah Ahmed and I also think that like I don't know how many orientations that I managed to find but it, the book's about two and a half inches thick if you look at it like that way so there's an awful lot of um I think um Iris Murdoch paid an awful lot of attention to the experiences of women and the way that her female characters uh, have to struggle to orient themselves in 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 whatever direction they're orienting orienting themselves in and, and Carol, did that surprise you when you were when you when you went? Obviously, this is a an, it was an enormous it's an enormous achievement to produce that, that work, and to think and, and to go through it alphabetically and to pick out all these ideas from, from the twenty six novels. Were you surprised? Did you change your position on how you perceive Murdoch and feminism? Yeah, very very much, very much. So I I was I was surprised at the sort of the the feeling of weight and. Um, just this, this like, the, like orientate the orientation is just seems to be such a, such a struggle. But she seems to pay so much attention to it, as if she, as if I, I, I don't know. If, like to me, I can identify with most of the most of the orientations, and people. And when I've talked about the work or or asked or various projects on Instagram where people have. Um, I've asked people to pick an orientation that they can relate to. It seems um, that they, <laughs> they that they do relate to a lot, a lot, a lot of the people that get involved with the project. So it's like it's I don't know. It's like they're they're so they a lot of them are really dense, but they're they say so much about contemporary uh, to me about contemporary experience for women. Mm. When when on the one hand. I don't know some of the male like before I started looking at the female experience I, I, I thought I think the men characters are really funny and like a lot of my work was kind of about like where's the joke in the male characters and the, and when I first started doing this PhD I didn't I, I missed the joke and but I but then I changed I told, that helped me to totally change my mind about Iris Murdoch as a I think she is. Um, she does have a feminist sympathy with her female characters, mm. and that's interesting. And I, I, and, um, and I'm sure you could say much more about the how the project has developed um, post cartography for girls in the last um, in the last three or four years. But I want to come back to Wendy. Um, so I, I suppose you know we've, we've got different kind of forms of how we approach Murdoch in the in fiction philosophy as a. Um, artistic practice and, and so on. Wendy, are there any elements that you've, um, that we've just listened to that you'd like to respond to? Yes, uh, I'm still actually not quite sure, Lucy, what do you mean by intersectional feminist? Does that just mean putting the emphasis 
on the individual? Um, well, intersectionality is uh, a concept that arose out of um, kind of legal discourse in America about um, employment uh, action, employment rights, whereby I believe um, it, it, so an employment case was taken on the basis of, of gender discrimination and it was um, it, it was Kimberly Crenshaw uh, wrote how gender alone was not the basis of discrimination, it was gender and race. And intersectionality really has become a type of matrix thinking so that one person is no one characteristic. I mean, I, I think of it in relation, it's similar to the complication of the single universal film spectator that film studies used to think of in the, in the 70s and the 80s actually in kind of high theory or psychoanalytic film theory. They would write about, oh, the spectator feels this, the spectator is positioned in relation to the camera like this and the director like this. and then feminist theory, queer theory, post-colonial theory, cultural studies came along and said there is no such thing as one spectator. You know, spectators are very different compared to the, um, uh, depending upon their constituent identities. So my experience of a film would be very different from Miles's, from my mum's, um, age, race, nationality, sexuality, gender, all these things make a difference. So intersectionality has basically said, uh, white liberal European feminism does not account for the experience of black women and it's a, it arose out of that black feminism and so now if any kind of feminist argument or approach it has to be intersectional in that it looks at all the elements of a person's um, identity that are in play rather than just their gender so um, and this is where I think Murdoch is doing that, actually, in many ways, in that she, um, as Carol said, she's very good at writing hilarious and preposterous men um, and making clear kind of what kind of individuals they are. But she also has great awareness of the lives, the situated lives of individual women. Yes. Please forgive me for saying this. You probably will be very offended, but what you've just told me reminds me of a sociology class I took at university where what I would think is just common sense has been given these sort of, well, theoretical dressing. I mean, of course there would be no one viewer for, for films. Anyway, we probably have to agree to disagree. I think for me, theory is often something that clouds issues rather than clarifies them. But it's, it's language, isn't it, as well? That's why it's so important. Like if, if the dominant discourse of a, of a subject or a discipline or a conversation is only about one specific type of person, then it's very exclusive to yes. other people who want to join in that discourse. So it's, these theories often adopt a kind of jargon which makes understanding so much more difficult. I think just speaking in clear terms, anyone can understand, but that was my, my yeah, dislike of sociology, that it's, it had to discuss things in a certain language with certain terms, which made common sense unavailable. I mean, the ordinary person who hadn't studied those terms wouldn't really understand what that meant. But anyway, just to go back, say, to what Carol has said as well. So I do think that Murdoch does make many of her men quite grotesque. They're um, self-deluded, they're self-destructive. The women in their sphere sort of have to protect themselves from their influence because they're so selfish, they don't really think of any anyone but themselves. However, I do think it's worthy of note that, of course, Murdoch is acknowledged as a famous philosopher, a famous novelist, but that she she failed to allow the women in her books to to have any such status as public intellectuals, and that was sort of similar, I think, to George Eliot. She does sympathize with them and shows their problems and their emotions, but I don't think in general she makes them people that that anyone would want to emulate. Anyway. Well, I, suppose, I suppose we could think of Anna Klein in a severed head and yet she's quite a dangerous 
Yes. Well, she may be the exception, but if you think most of the other women are sort of, yeah, content to be the handmaidens to the men in their lives that they're, they are sacrificing themselves. And I don't think Murdoch sees that as particularly admirable because, you know, all these charismatic male narrators who manipulate others and have the power, where's the female equivalent? Yes, so you can only really think of as somebody who, as a sort of manipulator of a, a power figure. I can only, I don't know about anybody else. I can only think of on a client at the moment. Well, I wonder I think where... What's interesting about that, that though is that Murdoch herself, I think, is also as another bit of jargon word that you wrote, like Wendy, <laughs> is also a, a classic, like one of the most influential pioneering non-binary thinkers. She thinks that there's masculine and feminine in everybody. She talks about herself in masculine terms, in homosexual terms. In um, she talks about there being male and female, masculine and feminine in all individuals. So, in a way, I've always seen a lot of her kind of fictional characters almost as sort of archetypes or instances of of people, rather than um, you know that, that convey. Uh, or that demonstrate these sort of characteristics and that she, so for example, something like uh, Rain and Bill, isn't it? In the Sandcastle, the, the, yes. the academic, yeah. yeah. That sort of relationship is so classically sort of, A, it's one that Murdoch would have been very f familiar with, teacher and young artist, what have you. B, the kind of pathetic devotion and delusion of the older man and the kind of suffering and pain and, and yeah, delusion of the younger woman is so um, sensitively conveyed, but neither is particularly endorsed. They're just under, they're understood. Um, but I do think that she, this is where also I think that some of the ideas about her not being uh, interested in, so or not being, not talking about structural criticism, it, it, she investigates it through her novels. She demonstrates the way in which these power structures work through her novels um, and is in a very kind of uh, socially binary way, but not in a, you know, individuals are very non-binary, I would say. Carol, come in. Yes. Um, well, again, I think, I think for me, the people, the, the men that have the power, I think she's, she's taking the mickey out of them I, I don't who's saying that, that that to have power is a good thing is that to, to me I I, I think it, it, when she's sort of conveying the experience of the women I don't think they're necessarily um uh downtrod downtrodden in, in the or, or or sort of inferior to the men at all I think she's saying a different a different thing about p the power relationships or or the value of power. I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily something that is valued higher than uh, struggling to orient yourself in 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 a in a in, a, in, a, in, a, in another direction. Well, someone like I know Jake Donahue is pretty um, unusual, but I just think he's such a fantastic character. And yeah. Murdoch, what Murdoch shows there, she really conveys through him his kind of a monstrous self-delusion about his own sort of you know his judo and his all his kind of um pretensions and yet also shows a real sensitivity and um and hurt and loneliness and kind of shows a really complex character that is that is not um exclusively a kind of powerful macho character at all by any any means it's actually quite a a, a multifaceted and tormented soul with weaknesses as well as strengths uh, like bill again i think in sanka's weaknesses as well as strengths and they're not necessarily coded as masculine and feminine but they are complex characters who feature you know elements of what might be considered to be both but i think for example in the book in the brotherhood um, you have this David Crimmins, and the whole focus of the book is on his long quasi-philosophical treatise, which he's never managed to complete. But um, he is the center of attraction because he's got intellectual ideas. It's not necessarily power, it, but it's people who have some sort of intellectual 
principles or ideas or it's almost like um, Mr. Kassobon in Middlemarch, someone who has some project and these tend to be exclusively male in, mm -hmm. in Murdoch's novels. Um, and in the book, Crimin asserts women are inferior to men. All, all men think and most women um, don't. He said, why deny it? Women are different. Their brains are different. They're weaker. Now, I don't think Murdoch subscribes to that, but I think that her female characters do tend to be more concerned about the emotions of others, whereas men are just off on their own intellectual projects. Anyway. I wonder, I wonder Wendy, whether we, we can think about um... Murdoch and the comedic in, in that regard. I think about how she does sort of lampoon the, these masculine, as, as she does with Charles Araby, with Bradley, with David in the book of the Brotherhood. And, and in, indeed, I can think of, you know, the, the, sort of the, the, the grouping of them in the message to the planet as well, those, those, those four men. Yeah. I think there are elements of comedy that kind of highlight the kind of... Um, preposterous. It, yeah, sorry, sorry, Lucy? Preposterous. The preposterousness <laughs> of, of, of the male ego. Yeah. Yes, but I think she also holds that up to a kind of regard. At least they're, yeah, they're not passive, sort of pathetically, you know, influenced by circumstance. They are trying to do something. It's almost as though the way Murdoch has talked about male-female divide, it's almost as though she's taking man in a biblical sense. First was man, and then God created woman but I don't think that she is saying women are inferior but just that that they have to assert themselves and well I lived in Japan for 36 years women are emphatically second-class citizens but I am not a feminist because I refuse to be known just as a woman I am me and I think that's why I, I quite like Murdoch's attitude. I don't want to be a victim and I refuse to be a victim. <laughs> um, sorry, Lucy. No, no, sorry. So to me, to me a character like a character, the, the, through the process of doing the, the things the way that, like making art and this, it, using these kind of sort of mining processes, some, a character like Muriel say from, um, the time of the, oh, the angels, yeah. yeah, yeah. Somebody like her, when when you, when you take all of her all of her thought, all of her orientations together, it's it's like it's she's Murdoch's done an amazing job of writing somebody going through the situation that she's gone through, the way that Muriel has to deal with the situation that she's in. It's heartbreaking, and it's it's kind of like genius as a as a as a way of describing that fictional woman's experiences, and I and I find that incredibly powerful. Rather than seeing her as a, a Muriel as a character that's um, weak, it's, it's that Muriel's a character that 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 is how she's dealing with that terrible situation that she's in. And I'm just thinking back to the ending of that, which is when she's carrying out Elizabeth in this kind of, in, you know, representation of the Pietar, I suppose. And it's, yeah. um, she she is the one that's going to, you know, be the, the centre of power for, for whatever stage comes after after the end of the novel. Um, I mean, so, yeah, I think, there, I think there are elements of that. Lucy? Let's be honest, though, Murdoch herself was not averse to these um, preposterous men. You know, she, like, she liked the... Um, uh, the, the, you know the, we know so so many but the Kinetti type character who was this kind of um attractive dynamic um masculine what sort of male thinker uh, she was very attracted to that sort of character so she wrote a lot of, of them she was she loved that kind of character she understood that dynamic we, um, we should say i suppose intellectually attractive rather than yeah intellectually attractive, yeah. yeah yeah and yeah. um artistically <laughs> Um, yes, in sure. a writerly way yeah. um she uh, yeah they were um but but she is also so capable of taking it just over the edge and showing as you say lampoon lampooning them taking them into charles araby territory and showing just how sort of deluded they are self-deluded i think that's something actually that she they're really great examples for her to work through their their ego 
which is clearly a concern that she has, you know, the centre of her thinking, to show how their ego's in operation and how dangerous and deluded that kind of um, bloated ego can be. Yes, but uh, she devotes so much attention to the men in her books. I don't think that it can just be that they are targets of her ridicule. Um, one thing I found interesting, I, I looked up about John Bailey, what was his idea? And he remarked once that Iris was never female, apart from the occasions when he had a temper tantrum. Quote, she would then become calm, reassuring, almost maternal, not as if deliberately, but with some deep unconscious female response that normally had no need to come to the surface. Iris in general was never female at all, a fact for which I sometimes remember to be grateful. <laughs> That's a quote from John Bailey. Yeah, I mean, had children, her books were her children, but yeah. I wonder what I wonder what he thought about his own um, masculinity, or whether or not they attributed. I mean, that's something that their marriage is always portrayed in the kind of. Anne was saying last night in the Christmas lecture that there's something kind of childlike about their Absolutely. about their relationship. But of yeah. course, I don't think that Murdoch would consider. I mean, she was profoundly um, supportive and, and committed to women's education. She was very aware of the fact that there were women were deprived of a great number of opportunities globally um, that she had been very fortunate and privileged to have not, you know, to have enjoyed such as um, education at the highest level. So I, I, I think that um, obviously a lot of this as well depends on how you label or attribute characteristics. If you attribute caring and calm tolerance or explanation as maternal, then you know that's one thing but if you just attribute it as caring calm and uh, encompassing then that is a gender free characteristic and but and uh, but you can't get away from the fact that she was very interested in um the masculine in the feminine and the feminine in the masculine in herself and in her characters and in her philosophical thinking so i don't think she would be bound by these ideas of particular characteristics I wonder if you've read an essay by Margaret Rowan about too many men. Anyway, she believed that in Murdoch's world, intellectual women, and this is quoting, are relegated to the private domestic sphere, while the world of the professions, the public world, is dominated by men. But so also is the world of education, the very means by which Murdoch sees women joining the human race. So. I'm, I'm sure she believed in women's education, but in the books, all of her educated women just tend to retreat and they don't become, they don't adopt an academic career. They, yeah, they give it all up for love. I don't think they willingly give it up. I think, I think she's writing about how their, um, if that's the, 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 their situation determines that they might have had to give it up because they got married or um, things, things changed when they met a man. But I, maybe she's saying that's the way it was for women, and, but the way that the women think about it, there, there, aren't, there aren't many orientations that are like, yay, I've given up being an artist because I've got married. They're, they're, they, reg they have regrets or um, they, it's a, it, there's a sense of loss about their opportunities, but as opposed to a, I'm happy to do this because I because I met a bloke. Yeah. I also think I also think there's a mm, when you're thinking about novels written in the like 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there's there's a difference between thinking about what um, lifestyle choices and behaviours that those characters. Um, are shown to do or shown to embody um, and her her own intellectual um, project her own moral philosophy her thinking about the uh, the task of the individual the task of individuals as moral agents our role in cultivating this kind of loving gaze that that pays that is has is grounded in self-respect but also respect for the other and I think that that is um, uh, very important to differentiate 
from the fictional characters in her novels, which are, um, she always saw them as separate. I know a lot of people don't. I do um, see them as very separate um, elements of her working, thinking life. So she's devoted to thinking about people and uh, the inner lives of individuals in her philosophical work, in her moral philosophy and moral psychology. She's um, committed to that as she is to uh, many types of lives, to animal lives, to vegetal lives. She's a, a, a very sort of egalitarian, uh, generous thinker like that. Uh, and so there's a difference, I think, for me in the evidence of this kind of uh, phenomenological feminism in her thinking and her writing from her characters in her novels. Uh, would we all agree then the, these uses of these labels are, are perhaps not that appropriate for, for, for Murdoch's work in life or philosophy or, or artistic practice? I think they're very appropriate. You um, do? Yeah, I think yeah. she's, I, I mean, I find her, I mean, well, which labels? Um, well, that's it, isn't it? I think that's yeah, the, the question I mean, about I, how, we, how we actually define. And this boils down her. as well to whether or not we're doing an investigative um, analysis of where feminism lies or doesn't in the work of Iris Murdoch or whether or mm. not we're saying um, I want to work with her now and her work her thinking is amenable to contemporary feminist perspectives which I firmly believe it is. Yes yeah, so, yeah I'd agree with that. It's Carol. Yeah I do as well I think she I, I think um, she definitely has a feminist sympathy and and um, the the fact that the 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 women are so alienated from happiness, she's 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 sympathetic to that rather than um, making any kind of gender distinction about that in a power sense. I think I think she's she's with them on that or understands that, and maybe that's I don't know because me personally I can identify with the the male characters as probably more as much as I can as the female characters. The bad bit, the bad bits of them, yeah, I can see myself. <laughs> as I'm sure she did as well. Yeah, yeah, but I think, but I think, sort of weaving through all of the stories, there's for me, there's definitely a feminist sympathy. Yeah, and uh, presumably how we read her now is very different to how she would have been received as well, in, in you know, critically in, in the seventies and eighties. Mm. Uh, Wendy, has this conversation changed anything for you? Have you? Um, <laughs> so do, you, do you still believe that these, these labels are, are, are dangerous ones to apply to Murdoch? I, I don't like identity politics. Mm. And I think labels, yeah, as I have said, cloud much more than they clarify. And I'm unwilling to be classified. And I think that Murdoch also was unwilling to classify people. One of her attractions for me, as it is, I, I like George Eliot and I like Virginia Woolf because they weren't content to just be labeled. I don't want to be labeled. <laughs> I think they didn't either because the individual, I think as Lucy was pointing out, it is the individual. Of course, we need to take that individual into context. You know, what was their past? What skin color are they? Were they educated? Of course, I mean, again, as I said, that's common sense. We do have to. We don't need a, a philosophy or theory to tell us that. That's just common sense to me. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, Lucy, do you think it's easier to deal with the philosophy and the, the non-fictional material than it is to talk about the fictional material in relationship to some of these questions? Yeah. Some of these questions, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. I, I think that um, it's important to uh, not only place Murdoch in the trajectory of feminist thinking and be aware of what she would have read and seen and the language that she uh, was using to to talk about but also um, I think that in relation to the novels I just see it as a different project I see her thinking in action in the in the novels clearly but I see her thinking about her scholarship and her examples and her exemplars, shall we say, and her imaginary, mm. I see as um, one of equality. And I see that as, um, no more than that, I see that as having a feminist emphasis. 
and for me I think that the idea of common sense is is quite a um uh is a very personal perspective what's common sense to one person is not necessarily common sense to another and that's where the necessity for um analytical work uh, comes to the fore I think in order to ensure inclusion of um of others and I think that that's what Murdoch is doing when she talks about um her uh, the type of work that she's setting out in the sovereignty of good and the type of um, uh, she's she never blows her own trumpet and, and makes great claims for the work that she is doing she says something about this is just a way of thinking see how it works you know she's she's a very experimental thinker but I think inclusivity in terms of gender and sexuality um, is very important to her yeah so as i think it was in her public life as well we haven't talked a, yeah, a great deal about that but and her uh, personal as, relationships and her personal relationships sure yeah. she described herself as a male homosexual or female yeah. homosexual i think the male, male homosexual, yeah, homosexual female in the female, female body body. yeah yes. which um, throws up all sorts of other questions that we can probably no, get get onto on another podcast um carol i'm going to i'm going to come come to you and then i'm going to ask each of you um <laughs> what particular um book or philosophical essay or what we should be reading to uh, um, to take this conversation forward for, for our listeners. But Carol, I'll come to you first for your, your final thoughts. Um, I think I, I'm not really sure what my, what my final thoughts are. But it's a work in progress, right? That's a work, yeah, it's a work yeah. in progress, yeah. Yeah, I, I, do, I, would, I do think though that um, for me, for me, um, like doing what doing what I do it's all I'm sure like for everybody it's always a, it's always a work in progress and I think I think I think what I like what I've, I like about doing what I liked about doing the book and what I like doing about Instagram is that it it keeps bringing me back to the to the to her fictional writing about women's experience and I and I keep being surprised at how relevant I find that like during the lockdown in particular I, I find it contemporary and contemporarily relevant. That's interesting, isn't it? That she speaks to us in such different circumstances, mm. um, even though the books are maybe 50, 60, 70, even 70 years old. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's wonderful. Okay, so um, Carol, is there, obviously we, everybody who's listening to this, if they haven't already got it, they need to get a copy of Cartography for Girls. And there's going to be a link to it um, in the podcast. But oh, what yeah. work by Murdoch should they be should they be looking at to think about um, um, feminism, women's issues, whatever it might be? Um, I, I think maybe I I'd say metaphysics is a guide to morals again, and um, um, the the women that she mentions in there and her, and and her writing about her, her thoughts about Simone Weil. Of course, yeah, Simone Weil. We yeah, we could. I think this, we're going to have a whole episode on Murdoch's relationship with Simone Weil. Um, okay, you know, and, and, hugely important to her. And I and I think there's quite there's a lot there's a lot. I was looking at um, is it Chris Krause's Aliens and Anorexia, and and her writing on Simone Weil and and comparing that to Murdoch's in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. Wow, maybe that's what I'm doing. That's your next stage. That's, that yeah. sounds fascinating. Thank you, um, Lucy. How about you? Um, I think you have to go as a as a way in to this and the sort of things that we've been talking about to M and D to the parable of M and D in um, sovereignty of good essays that's the, the volume of three essays because it's there that you can see front and center that Murdoch is taking a relationship between an intergenerational relationship between two women in a domestic setting as the heart of her moral philosophy uh, and I think that that's wonderful. Yes, I, I do too, actually. And of course, we're thinking about the um, the other famous um, scene from those those three essays, the kestrel. It's actually yeah. a woman perceived. It's her perceiving the kestrel. It's not a man. It's 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 her yeah. as a woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which so is which about it's an insight into um, not only her thinking, her own thinking, and that she's um, placing herself as a kind of a spiritual person and a cerebral person, but also that in terms of um, inner life and um spiritual moral psychological growth she's thinking about it in relation to this um seemingly ordinary character um a woman who is thinking about her daughter-in-law so i think that that is 
absolutely pivotal to understanding Murdoch's thinking. Yeah, lovely, thank you. And um, Wendy, I'm going to leave the last um, the, the last uh, word to you. Yes, well, it's not my favourite book, but it's very typical, I think, of Murdoch's attitude, the book in the Brotherhood. So the title is heavily gendered. There's two female characters, Rosa Kirtland and Jean Cambon. Neither is writer of the book. They're only connected to the Brotherhood through familial associations. They're both clever academics, but Jean settles for being just a wife. Rose has done lots of things, but everything was sort of part-time and freelance and haphazard. Neither woman tries hard in the public sphere, and it's really about the men. But I'm not saying that as someone who dislikes her own sex. I love women, but equally I love men. And I, I don't like to see divisions made between them. And I think that if it's the men who are doing the interesting work, then it's normal for Murdoch to focus on them rather than on women who just are handmaidens to men's intellectual ambitions. Lovely, thank you very much. I mean, it's one that I haven't read in a little while, so perhaps it's going to go on the bookshelf um, and um, I'm going to have a look at that between Christmas and New Year and pick that up and, and reread it. So, uh, yeah, thank you all so much for your, your suggestions thank you. and, 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 thank, and thank you for being on the podcast. I mean, my thanks to, um, to Wendy Jones-Akanishi, to uh, Lucy Bolton and to thanks, Chris Mark. Sommer um, for being part of this fascinating podcast. I'm sure that some of these um, questions will, will come up again and obviously you're very welcome um, to come back. So my thanks to you all and thanks to everybody for listening.